The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls on the political power of Angela Rayner, Lionel Shriver on the unscientific divides between the vaxxed and unvaxxed, and Nick Newman looks at the differences between British and American cartooning. First up, Katie Balls. Almost no MP has emerged with dignity from the sleaze debacle of the past three weeks. Boris Johnson's botched attempt to spare Owen Patterson a 30-day suspension has badly damaged his credibility with his own party. The 2019 intake of Red Bull MPs have turned on the old guard, accusing their colleagues of damaging the party's reputation for outside interests. Opposition leaders have struggled to capitalise on Tory disarray. Ed Davies' £78,000 a year job as a consultant has let him out of the debate and Keir Starmer has faced questions over his outside earnings for legal work. But there is one politician who suffers from none of these problems, Angela Rayner. Instead, Labour's deputy leader has emerged as the government's tormentor-in-chief. She's the most potent attack dog, says one senior Tory. Rayner's supporters say her background gives her an air of authenticity in the second jobs row. She left school pregnant age 16 and worked as a care worker and trade union representative before entering politics. For her, the £82,000 MP salary is not a hardship that needs to be supplemented. It's the most she has earned in her life, just that it is far more than most voters can expect to earn in theirs. Her anger over outside interest seems genuine. When Starmer gave a speech announcing plans to press the Tories on second jobs, he felt the need to bring Rayner in as his warm-up act. A lot of the attacks have been blunted by the fact people like Starmer and David Lammy do outside work, but with Rayner it's much harder, says one minister. It's a crisis crafted for her. She has certainly been making the most of it, threatening to report badly behaved MPs to the Standards Commissioner. This is driving our side bonkers, says one Tory. Just a few weeks ago, the sense in Westminster was that Rayner had overstepped. The talk of her as a rival to Starmer had died down after she labelled Tory scum in a late-night speech at Labour Party conference. But after she finally apologised unreservedly for the comment and offered an in-person apology to the Prime Minister, MPs on both sides have started to reassess. Some cabinet members believe that the sleaze row is less damaging than, say, the illegal migrant crossings in the English Channel. The hope in number 10 is that the government's latest plan, a ban on MPs taking on second jobs as political consultants, will bring the matter to a close. But there is no sign of the drama abating. Firstly, Rayner is still in full pursuit. She sees the past three weeks as the next phase in a Tory sleaze campaign that Labour has been working on for more than a year. One supporter describes the situation as death by a thousand letters to Lord Gite, in reference to the Prime Minister's advisor on UK ministers' interests. What's more, Johnson's troubles extend to his own party. As soon as the Prime Minister released his plan to clamp down on outside interests, MPs complained to the Whip's office that they were being cut off from work without discussion. One senior Tory, without a second job, says the problem is the process. 
it's just more Downing Street panic mode, announcing something just to make an opposition day debate less painful. It's Monty Python. He's making it up as he goes along. It doesn't help that Johnson made millions in outside earnings when he was a backbencher, yet now expects colleagues to make do of much less. His latest project, a biography of Shakespeare, with a reported advance of £500,000, is still ongoing. The extent to which MPs have lost confidence in Number 10's judgement can't be overestimated. After the government's U-turn over Owen Patterson, MPs have started to openly question whether they should take orders from the Whip's office seriously. An attempt in Downing Street to rebuild party morale is underway. On Tuesday night, the 2019 intake were invited to a drinks reception with the Prime Minister, which one figure involved described as a plot to shower them with love. Johnson urged them to stick with us and stick with it, while mocking Starmer's honourable member for Holborn, St Pancras and Michonne Dorea, in a reference to claims denied by Starmer that Jeremy Corbyn stopped him taking a second job with the law firm. There are plans for a bigger charm offensive in the new year. All Tory MPs have been invited to a two-day residential parliamentary away session in the Midlands, the first since David Cameron was Prime Minister. Lukewarm white wine and the Prime Minister's love bombs are unlikely to dispel backbenchers' concerns about the general political landscape. When ministers attended an away day recently, several left cautiously encouraged by the polling and the presentation they were shown by Isaac Gavido, the Tory strategist, on the need to focus on delivery. The message those present took away was that despite the sleaze row, the party still garners goodwill with the public for delivering Brexit and the success of the vaccine rollout. Perhaps more importantly, Starmer does not poll well. Instead, he is seen as a static leader. He's one of our best assets, says the minister. MPs on both sides of the House are starting to ask whether a female Labour leader would be more effective against Johnson. Members of the Shadow Cabinet have discussed the idea privately, pointing to how the PM finds it harder to go up against a woman at the dispatch box. He even struggles when a Tory woman asks a sympathetic question, says one senior Labour MP. He has always struggled with women, admits one of Johnson's advisers, metaphorically at least. Johnson's estranged aide, Dominic Cummings, has said a Midlands woman would help transform Labour's fortunes, suggesting that the shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy could be a contender. He's not the only one to see how a female leader can make things harder for the PM. As Rayner gets ready to go out on the campaign trail in the two pre-Christmas by-elections, Old Bexley and Sidcup and North Shropshire, more people will start to ask whether she is better placed to take advantage of Tory misfortune than Starmer. That was Katie Balls. Next we have Lionel Shriver. When a column highlighting underappreciated breaking news has absolutely no impact on the course of events, per usual, the urge to make the same point again is irresistible. In August, Public Health England released data which shows that Vaccination does not appreciably guard against COVID infection and transmission, and protection worked out at around 17% for the over 50s. As I observed then, this would mean the vaxxed and unvaxxed pose a comparable danger to each other. All COVID apartheid schemes are therefore insensible. Fresher information has fortified this conclusion of the summer. In every age group over 30 in the UK, the rates of COVID infection per 100,000 are now higher among the vaxxed than the unvaxxed. 
indeed in the cohorts aged between 40 and 79. Infection rates among the vaccinated are more than twice as high as among the unvaccinated. PHE's fruitlessly rechristened body, the UK Health Security Agency, frantically clarifies that the data, quote, should not be used to estimate vaccine effectiveness, a caveat which I include for the sake of accuracy. But the differences in the infection rates are drastic enough for you to draw your own conclusions. As for the comparative contagiousness of each group, the data is mixed. A study published in Nature early last month confirmed PHE's finding that the COVID-positive vaxxed and unvaxxed carry nearly identical viral loads. Hence, they should be similarly infectious. But viral load turns out to drop more quickly in the vaccinated, making them infectious for a shorter period. The study shows that, quote, people who become infected with the Delta variant are less likely to pass the virus to their close contacts if they have already had a COVID-19 vaccine than if they haven't. That's the good news. Now for nature's bad news. Quote, But that protective effect is relatively small and dwindles alarmingly at three months after the receipt of the second shot. Unfortunately, the vaccine's beneficial effect on Delta transmission waned to almost negligible levels over time. Three months after vaccination, your chances of passing on the Delta variant are, quote, on par with the likelihood that an unvaccinated person will spread the virus. Mercifully, the vaccine's protection from hospitalization and death is slumping slowly and remains considerable. Stress on healthcare systems and excess deaths are the only reasons COVID is a concern of government. All this information is in the public domain. Yet, due to doublethink, idiocy, mulishness, duplicity, derangement, or all of the above, policymakers are refusing to act on its implications. The absurd theater of vaccine passports in continental Europe is worse than pointless. Gatekeeping of pleasure palaces promotes the misimpression, statistically, the lie that the unvaccinated riffraff exiled to the pavement pose a far graver threat of communicable disease than the diners in the nearby banquette who, like you, have righteously got the shot. In truth, the double-jabbed airline passenger in 24A can be just as risky a seatmate as the great unwashed banished from the flight. Officialdom's stubborn refusal to register that vaccination does not rule out COVID infection or transmission has catastrophic consequences. As England's adult social care sector has more than 100,000 vacancies already, the compulsory sacking of unvaxxed care home staff could close up to 500 facilities that the nation can't afford to lose. A vaccine mandate for NHS employees will likewise lead to significant staff attrition when the service also suffers 
from about 100,000 unfilled jobs. Stopped for now by the courts, Joe Biden has bullied on with his edict that all American businesses with 100 or more employees require their whole workforce to be vaccinated or submit to onerous weekly testing with a whopping $14,000 fine per unvaxxed hire. Austria has just implemented a lockdown for its entire unvaccinated population of 2 million, already barred from restaurants, hair salons, and cinemas. Now these poor pariahs can barely leave the house. The myth of ultra-contagious anti-vaxxers dispersing plague-like rats in the Middle Ages has fostered gratuitous rancor and division. A friend in New York declared recently that she hoped all the unvaccinated would simply die. By spearheading the vaccine drives, governments have attached themselves to a product. They are implicitly in league with the pharmaceutical industry, not by means of a conspiracy, but because of perceived common interest. Successful vaccine successful government. The mainstream media and swaths of the medical establishment have also attached themselves to the product. All these parties are in cahoots to maintain a Manichaean social partition. You must be all in or you're all against. Any appreciation for the risks or limits of vaccines casts you as a dreaded anti-vaxxer. So, Any feel for nuance makes you stupid. Any short of fanatical devotion to the perfect benevolence of vaccines makes you crazy. Yet the product is a bit of a disappointment. It reduces death and hospitalization, but can't stop COVID from spreading. The virus continues merrily to sweep through heavily vaccinated populations. What we have here, then, is an advertising problem. The purveyors of products are inclined to overpromise. Adverts for a hair loss treatment tend to boast not stimulate some minor follicular growth, but rather cures balding. Having oversold their adopted elixir, governments won't retreat from the cures balding pitch. Won't keep you from getting sick, or even from making other people sick, but prevents dying a lot of the time, makes for a lukewarm slogan. I'm double vaccinated, gladly so on balance, but I've no fear of vaccine virgins. As the medical case for shunning the unvaccinated is unconvincing, vax passports and employment mandates function purely as blackmail. As a judge decreed when staying Biden's edict, the mandate's true purpose is not to enhance workplace safety, but instead to ramp up vaccine uptake by any means necessary. Much Western public health policy is now irrational. Governments need to detach from the product. Instead, they've detached from the facts. That was Lionel Shriver. And finally, we have Nick Newman. Why do cartoonists struggle to break into America? 
Cartoons are like Gossamer, and one doesn't dissect Gossamer. So says Mr Elinoff, the fictional cartoon editor of The New Yorker, in an episode of Seinfeld, when trying to explain a cartoon to Elaine. Elaine isn't satisfied. Mr Elinoff suggests the cartoon is a commentary on contemporary mores, a slice of life, or even a pun. You have no idea what this means, do you, says Elaine. No, he concedes. The scene sums up the problem of understanding the New Yorker's sometimes oblique sense of humour and may come as a relief to many of the British cartoonists who tried and failed to break into the Big Apple's literary bastion. It's reassuring to think that even Americans as funny as Seinfeld can be baffled by New Yorker jokes. Yet still the mystique survives and most British cartoonists have had a stab at getting into the magazine, lured by its great cartoon history, James Thurber, Saul Steinberg, Charles Adams, and the money. It pays more than ten times as much for a cartoon than UK magazines. Former real cartoon editor Bob Mankoff said in a TED Talk, The New Yorker occupies a very different space. It's a space that is playful in its own way and also purposeful, and in that space the cartoons are different. New Yorker humour is self-reflective. Elsewhere, he recalled that when he was finally rewarded with a contract in 1980, the contract referred not to cartoons, but to idea drawings, what Mankoff calls the sine qua known of New Yorker cartoons, a drawing that requires both cartoonist and reader to think. Indeed, there's a Sam Gross cartoon of a landscape with a large sign reading, Stop and Think, and a man saying, it sort of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? So New Yorker gags are more philosophical than their British counterparts. Here, virtually anything goes. Sick jokes, coarse jokes, badly drawn jokes, puns. The New Yorker has a metropolitan disdain for crudity and eschews wordplay. We reckon that if bawdy humour and puns were good enough for Shakespeare, they're good enough for us. New Yorker cartoons also tend to be more lifestyle-oriented, and inhabit a more whimsical world of middle-class social gatherings, boardrooms, domestic relationships and navel-gazing neuroses. Some recent ones look like architectural drawings, whereas British cartoons tend to inhabit a more traditional cartoon landscape. Big noses, goofy expressions, surreal situations. Humour is, of course, a serious business, and from the outset nobody took it more seriously than The New Yorker. Its legendary founding editor, Harold Ross, was obsessed with perfection and detail. Thurber recounted how Ross studied a cartoon of a Model T Ford on a dusty road and demanded, better dust! He would also scan for hidden phallic symbols and sent a photographer to the United Nations building to check whether a drawing of its windows was accurate. Cartoons that fell below his standards would receive a, get it out of here! Today, aspiring New Yorker cartoonists just have to endure months of silence once their ideas are submitted. Success is greeted with a restrained OK from cartoon editor Emma Allen. Two British cartoonists who have enjoyed such success, following on the heels of a few UK predecessors such as Ronald Searle, H.M. Bateman and Heath Robinson, are Will MacPhail and Carol Isaacs, who draws under the pseudonym The Surreal McCoy. Both are adamant that the work they submit for The New Yorker is essentially no different from that published in British magazines.
My approach is more or less the same for both sides of the pond, says Isaacs. Maybe tweaking the grammar and spelling for the Americans. I love Seinfeld and the Marx Brothers as much as I love Spike Milligan and Fawlty Towers. As they say over there, go figure. MacPhail thinks the recent trend towards more absurd and bizarre cartoons in the magazine have helped his cause. Those are the cartoons that genuinely make me laugh, the ones where I don't know why it's funny. I've also seen a lot of the humour in British cartoons like maths equations. They're perfectly balanced and everything that is set up at the start of the equation works out correctly by the end. But I like the cartoons where you can't see the strings, if that makes sense. Is familiarity with New York essential to inhabiting the New Yorker mindset? Isaacs thinks not. After all, she says, there are many New Yorker cartoonists who've never set foot in New York. Their sense of humour is perhaps more about the absurd than anything else, and that knows no borders. MacPhail confesses that he used to make pilgrimages to the New Yorker offices just to submit in person to Bob Mankoff. I, of course, pretended that I just happened to be in New York at the time, so I do think there's a certain amount of them needing to know you're serious about it before they publish you. Like, wow, he's come all the way here just to get rejected in person. Each week, thousands of submissions are boiled down to some 50 acceptances. The closest I've come to making the grade is when I saw a cartoon identical to one I once drew for Private Eye, of a drunk ventriloquist in the gutter, whose dummy is vomiting, on the cover of a book entitled The Rejection Collection. Cartoons you never saw and never will see in The New Yorker. That was Nick Newman. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.